Hey everyone, it's Pacific, and welcome back to Insidious Inspirations. Just a few quick things to talk about this week for your episode. First, at the end of October, uh, we will be taking a proper break and working on Season 2, um, so we'll be off for a few months and we'll be back as soon as possible. And second, thanks for listening to the show. Uh, this was a huge experiment. We weren't sure if it was going to pan out or if it would be fun or if it would work. Uh, and it was all of those things. So we're very excited to come back next year with season two. Um, I'll have more information on that very soon. But for now, thanks for listening and enjoy this week's episode. When David Fincher's Zodiac released in 2007, it was accompanied by the tagline, based on the true story of America's most notorious serial killer. That's a pretty tall order in a nation that has lost sleep over the likes of Ted Bundy, Jeffrey Dahmer, BTK, John Wayne Gacy, and H.H. Holmes. The United States leads the world in serial murderers by a dramatic margin, with over 3,000 on record compared to the United Kingdom's 166. Many of the most famous cases, most of them in fact, ended with an arrest. Ted Bundy was caught driving a stolen car, BTK was traced via a floppy disk, and John Wayne Gacy was arrested several times for everything from inappropriate behavior with a minor to marijuana use. But Fincher's film, written by James Vanderbilt, focused on a killer whose identity was shrouded in mystery, who averted capture during the entirety of his reign of terror. He left breadcrumbs for the authorities, taunting them with clues and coded hints, but his crimes are considered some of the most famous unsolved murders in U.S. history. The true horror at the heart of Zodiac began with a murder on Lover's Lane in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1969. I'm Nicole Goodnight, and this is Insidious Inspirations. Senior Ditch Day is a time-honored, though normally not officially sanctioned, tradition among American high school students. Seniors basking in the glow of their impeding freedom from the drudgery of high school, knowing that finals, graduation, college, or their careers are just around the corner, take advantage of the last dwindling moments of childhood to skip a day of school along with the rest of their friends. On a Tuesday in early June 1963, Two seniors at Lompoc High School in Santa Barbara County decided to spend their senior ditch day at the beach. Robert Domingos and his fiancée Linda Edwards headed out to a beach near Gaviota State Park, where they planned to spend the day soaking up the sun and frolicking through the waves, reveling in the weather, the shore, and young love. But by the next day, they still hadn't returned home. Robert's father began to grow suspicious and worried something horrible had happened to his son. Tragically, he was right, and when he went to the beach to look for the teens he found something truly horrible. Their bodies were lying bound with rope inside a broken down shack. They had both been shot with a 22 caliber weapon, Robert 11 times and Linda 9. After they were dead, their killer had dragged them into the shack and tried to light the whole thing on fire. However he had tried to burn it down, he failed, and both the shack and the bodies of his victims remained intact. A police investigation turned up a few leads, and none would turn up again until years had passed and far more innocent lives had been lost. On December 20th, 1968, just five days before Christmas, most people's thoughts were on the holiday season. Last-minute gift shopping, family members traveling in from out of town, 
the logistics of defrosting a turkey or ham for a massive celebratory dinner, and the question of how much eggnog was too much. High school students Betty Lou Jensen and David Faraday, however, had put thoughts of Christmas out of their minds, replaced with bubbly new feelings of budding romance. They left Betty Lou's house together that night with a promise that she would be returned to her parents by 11 p.m. They drove away in David's Rambler and parked at a lover's lane along Lake Herman Road. Only moments after they were first spotted parking there, a passing driver spotted two bodies, lying motionless on the side of the road. Responders arrived at the scene and found Betty Lou with five bullets in her back, and David on the ground next to the car with a bullet wound in his head. He was still alive, but only barely. There were bullet holes in the car's roof and back window, indicating that the killer fired warning shots to force the victims to step out of the vehicle. Shell casings found on the scene as well as ballistic evidence identified the murder weapon as a twenty-two caliber semi-automatic pistol, firing Winchester Western Super X copper-coated bullets. The remainder of the holiday season went by with a dark shadow lingering overhead and the fear of when the killer might strike next. Seven months later, on the night of the 4th of July, while people occupied themselves with barbecues and fireworks, Darlene Farron picked up her friend Michael McGough and drove them both to Blue Rock Springs Park. Around midnight, another car pulled into the lot, but left shortly after. The pair dismissed it and were about to put it out of their minds when the car returned to the nearby empty parking lot a few minutes later. The car parked, and a figure stepped out of the driver's side. He shined a bright light into the car, startling and temporarily blinding Michael and Darlene. But before they could ask him what the hell he was doing, the stranger fired a 9mm handgun through the glass into the car. At 12.40pm, a call came in at the Vallejo Police Department from a gas station payphone. The officer who answered heard a low, monotonous voice that said, I want to report a murder. If you will go one mile east on Columbus Parkway, you will find kids in a brown car. They were shot with a 9mm Luger. I also killed those kids last year. Goodbye. Darlene was dead by the time she reached the hospital, but Michael survived his injuries. Unfortunately, the darkness of the night, the trauma of what he had witnessed, and the speed at which it all occurred left him unable to identify any potential suspects. As authorities scrambled to find answers, identify the perpetrator of these heinous deaths, several news publications around the San Francisco area began to receive strange letters scrawled in messy, misspelled handwriting. The letters included inscrutable ciphers, threats of coming violence, and details about the murders that only the guilty party could know. Up next, we find out about the strange letters the Zodiac Killer sent to goad the authorities, the desperate bid to crack the case before it was too late, and the mysteries that have persisted in the decades since the killing stopped. But first, a word from our sponsors. If you're interested in listening to the show ad-free and getting access to bonus content, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash insidiouspod. And now, back to our show. On July 31, 1969, three Bay Area newspapers received nearly identical letters. One went to the Vallejo Times-Herald, one to the San Francisco Chronicle, and the third went to the San Francisco Examiner. Each letter included a portion of a cipher, which the writer demanded be published. If a newspaper failed to publish his letter or his cipher, he would kill again. 
The letter to the editor of the San Francisco Chronicle said this, Dear Editor, This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman, and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas. Brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. Fourth July. Girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was Western. Over here is part of a cipher. The other two parts of the cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and San Francisco Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry, 1st of August, 69, I will go on a kill rampage Fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again, until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. After the letters were published, the police put out a statement asking the writer of the letters to provide additional information, in order to prove that he was indeed the killer he claimed to be. In response, the stranger sent another letter to the San Francisco Examiner on August 4, 1969. It was the first instance of the killer referring to himself as the Zodiac, and read as follows. Dear Editor, This is the Zodiac speaking. In answer to your asking for more details about the good times I have had in Vallejo, I shall be very happy to supply even more material. By the way, are the police having a good time with the code? If not, tell them to cheer up. When they do crack it, they will have me. On the 4th of July, I did not open the car door. The window was rolled down already. The boy was originally sitting in the front seat when I began firing. When I fired the first shot at his head, he leaped backwards at the same time, thus spoiling my aim. He ended up on the back seat, then the floor in the back, thrashing out very violently with his legs. That's how I shot him in the knee. I did not leave the scene of the killing with squealing tires and racing engine as described in the Vallejo paper. I drove away quite slowly, so as not to draw attention to my car. The man who told the police that my car was brown was a negro, about 40 to 45, rather shabbily dressed. I was at this phone booth having some fun with the Vallejo cops when he was walking by. When I hung the phone up, the damn thing began to ring, and that drew his attention to me and my car. Last Christmas. In that episode, the police were wondering as to how I could shoot and hit my victims in the dark. They did not openly state this, but implied this by saying it was a well-lit night and I could see the silhouettes on the horizon. Bullshit. That area is surrounded by high hills and trees. What I did was tape a small pencil flashlight to the barrel of my gun. If you notice, in the center of the beam of light, if you aim it at a wall or ceiling, you will see a black or dark spot in the center of the circle of light, about three to six inches across. When taped to a gun barrel, the bullet will strike exactly in the center of the black dot in the light. All I had to do was spray them as if it was a water hose. There was no need to use the gun sights. I was not happy to see that I did not get front page coverage. On August 8, 1969, Donald and Betty Hardin cracked the cryptogram, which, when translated, formed this unsettling note. I like killing people because it is so much fun. It is more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal of all. To kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. It is even better than getting your rocks off with a girl. The best part of it is that when I die, I will be reborn in paradise 
and all that I have killed will become my slaves. I will not give you my name, because you will try to slow down or stop my collection of slaves for my afterlife. The Biorietti Myth Pity The meaning of the final eighteen letters could not be determined, if there was any in the first place. The killer promised that he would never give his name lest it stop or slow down his collection of slaves for the afterlife. His writing also seemed to reference the 1924 Richard Connell short story, The Most Dangerous Game, about a shipwrecked man who finds himself hunted by an aristocratic big-game hunter intent on bagging the most dangerous game in the world. A little over a month after the cipher was cracked, the Zodiac Killer struck again. College students Brian Hartnell and Cecilia Shepard were relaxing on the shore of Lake Berryessa when a man suddenly appeared, wearing a hooded costume and brandishing a gun. He claimed to have escaped from prison and to be looking for money in a car so he could flee across the border into Mexico. What started as a simple robbery turned deadly after the man bound Brian and Cecilia's wrist with plastic clothesline. Without any warning, he stabbed Brian in the back six times with a large knife, then turned and stabbed Cecilia ten times. Just like he did in Vallejo, the killer called the police from a nearby payphone and tipped them off about a double murder. He described Brian's car, the location where the bodies could be found, and ended the call by saying, I'm the one who did it. When officers arrived on the scene, they found Cecilia and Brian still alive but horribly injured. Brian would eventually recover, but Cecilia passed away two days later. On Brian's car door, there was a note from the Zodiac, a crossed circle with the dates and locations of the previous murders. The date September 27th, 69, the time 6.30, and the words by knife. The California Department of Justice Documents Examiner evaluated the writing on the car door and determined that it was written by the same person who had penned in the Zodiac letters. Paul Stein, a 28-year-old husband and student, was working as a cab driver in the San Francisco area to pay the bills. On the night of October 11, 1969, he picked up a white male passenger near Union Square, who requested to be driven to the wealthy neighborhood of Presidio Heights. As the cab reached the intersection of Washington and Cherry Street, the man shot Stein in the head and removed a piece of his bloody shirt to take with him. The man was spotted by passing police officers, but a police radio broadcast incorrectly and racistly, identifying the suspect as a black man leading to the police walking right by the killer without giving him a second glance. The case was considered a robbery until the San Francisco Chronicle received an envelope in the mail, containing another letter from the Zodiac. The envelope also contained a piece of Paul Stein's bloodstained shirt. This is the Zodiac speaking. I am the murderer of the taxi driver over by Washington Street and Maple Street last night. To prove this, here is a bloodstained piece of his shirt. I am the same man who did in the people in the North Bay area. The San Francisco police could have caught me last night if they had searched the park properly instead of holding road races with their motorcycles seeing who could make the most noise. The car drivers should have just parked their cars and sat there quietly waiting for me to come out of cover. School children make nice targets. I think I shall wipe out a school bus some morning. Just shoot out the front tires, then pick off the kitties as they come bouncing out. In the months after Paul Stein's death, the Zodiac continued to write letters to the Chronicle, including ciphers and more pieces of Stein's shirt. On December 20, 1969, the Zodiac wrote to an entirely different audience when he contacted famous attorney Melvin Belly, begging him for help. Dear Melvin, this is the Zodiac speaking. I wish you a happy Christmas. 
The one thing I ask of you is this. Please help me. I cannot reach out for help because of this thing in me won't let me. I am finding it extremely difficult to hold it in check. I am afraid I will lose control again and take my ninth and possibly tenth victim. Please help me. I am drowning. At the moment the children are safe from the bomb because it is so massive to dig in, and the trigger mech requires much work to get it adjusted just right. But if I hold back too long from no nine, I will lose all control in myself and set the bomb up. Please help me. I cannot remain in control for much longer. He continued to write to the paper, sending ciphers and threatening murders and bombings if his works were not printed. But in spite of wild claims, including diagrams of explosives and clues to the supposed location of a bomb he had built, none of the promised bombings came to pass. Paul Stein's death was the last officially confirmed murder by the Zodiac, but, as deaths matching his modus operandi continued to occur across the country, authorities could not be sure the trail had gone cold. On Sunday, March 22, 1970, 22-year-old Kathleen Johns, who was seven months pregnant at the time, piled into a station wagon with her young daughter and left San Bernardino, California. She was headed up north to visit her sick mother. As she drove along Highway 132, a car pulled up alongside her. The driver inside waved at Kathleen, urging her to pull over. When she did, the man said the back wheel of her car was loose. He had noticed it while driving behind her, but he would fix the problem for her free of charge. Instead of helping, however, he loosened the lug nut so that the wheel would fall off when Kathleen attempted to drive away. Without a working car, Kathleen accepted the man's offer to drive her to a gas station. However, as she sat in the car with him, she was overwhelmed with the feeling that something was wrong. The man seemed off, somehow, and he kept thinly-veiled comments about her daughter that turned her stomach. Unwilling to stick around and see what he had in store for them, she grabbed her baby and jumped out of the car. A passing motorist picked Kathleen up and took her to the nearest police station. There she identified the man who had picked her up, matching his description to a police sketch of the Zodiac Killer. On March 22, 1971, the Chronicle received a postcard from someone believed to be the Zodiac. It included an advertisement for the Forest Pines Condominium in Lake Tahoe, Nevada, as well as the phrases past Lake Tahoe areas and sought victim 12. Some investigators interpreted this card as a deliberate reference to a disappearance in the area the year prior. In May of 1970, 25-year-old Donna Lass was working in a hospital near the area where the Zodiac killed Paul Stein. Shortly after, she moved to Lake Tahoe and began working there as a nurse. On September 6, 1970, Donna disappeared. Her car was found near her apartment, completely abandoned. An unnamed man called Donna's landlord and boss claiming Donna had left town for a family emergency, but her family confirmed no such emergency had occurred. Donna's body was never found, and her disappearance was never officially connected to the Zodiac, but to many, the potential link was too much to ignore. The Zodiac claimed involvement in several seemingly unrelated cases, including a Riverside murder from 1966, but nothing could be officially verified. Maybe these crimes had been his doing, or perhaps it was just another one of his twisted games. Only the Zodiac would know for certain. The Chronicle received their final letter from the Zodiac on January 29, 1974. So what did the Zodiac write about in his final letter? What nightmarish images or gleeful confessions did he have to share? Only a movie review, and a reference to the Mikado. I saw and think The Exorcist was the best satirical comedy that I have ever seen. 
Signed, yours truly. He plunged himself into the billowy wave and an echo arose from the suicide's grave, Tit, Willow, Tit, Willow, Tit, Willow. P.S. If I do not see this note in your paper, I will do something nasty, which you know I'm capable of doing. He concluded the letter with a pair of numbers, a macabre final score. Me, 37, SFPD, 0. Other letters followed it in the months to come, but they never quite matched the style, never seemed to be the genuine article. Another certified letter never came, and it seemed as if the book was finally closed on the Zodiac Killer, no matter how unsatisfying the ending might be. In December of 2020, an international team of cryptographers finally managed to crack the elusive Z340 cryptogram. Dave Orenchak, one of the three men who decoded the message, told Wired by email, The cipher has been unsolved for so long. It had a huge target on its back, and I felt like it was a challenge that had a chance of being solved. It was an exciting project to work on, and it was on so many people's top unsolved ciphers of all time lists. The coded message was written in what is known as a transposition cipher, a mode of cryptogram considered outdated today. Orenchak and his colleagues, Sam Blake and Jarl Van Eyck, managed to develop an app to help decode the puzzle and bring an end to a project he had been working on since 2006. The full text of the cipher reads, I hope you are having lots of fun in trying to catch me. That wasn't me on the TV show which brings up a point about me. I am not afraid of the gas chamber because it will send me to paradise all the sooner. Because I now have enough slaves to work for me where everyone else has nothing when they reach paradise, so they are afraid of death. I am not afraid. Because I know that my new life will be an easy one in paradise death. The mention of a TV show refers to a call made to a show on KGO TV a month before the cipher was sent, during which a man claiming to be the Zodiac said, I need help. I'm sick. I don't want to go to the gas chamber. The FBI in San Francisco officially confirmed that the team managed to solve the cipher and issued a statement saying that the investigation is still considered ongoing. In 2021, a team of independent cold case investigators known as the Case Breakers announced that they had, they believed, finally uncovered the identity of the Zodiac Killer. Several pieces of key information led them to the conclusion that the killer was a man named Gary Francis Post. First, an image found in Post's darkroom showed scars on his forehead that seemed to match a police sketch of the Zodiac Killer. Next, Jen Buchholz, a former Army counterintelligence agent, found that the Zodiac messages contained an alternate meaning when the letters of Post's full name were removed. Finally, the group looked to the death of Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California in 1966. Though the murder has never been officially attributed to the Zodiac, the casebreakers claimed an FBI memo from 1975 confirmed him as a suspect. Several connections were found, including post-treatment at a hospital near the murder site, a paint-spattered watch found at the scene, Post was a house painter for a living, and a boot print matching the size and style of both Post and the footprints at the Zodiac crime scenes. In spite of these claims, the FBI insists that the case remains open. If, in fact, Gary Francis Post was the elusive Zodiac killer, we will likely never know for certain. He died in 2018, and any secrets he may have carried regarding the mystery of one of the United States' most notorious serial killers died along with him.
This week's episode was written by Addison Peacock. Our host and narrator was Nicole Goodnight. Our editor and musician was Danny Sweet. And I'm your showrunner, Pacific Ass Obadiah. Our producers are Tom Owen and Brad Miska. And this is a Bloody FM show. For more information, visit bloody.fm.